Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Today we want to look or continue to look at a series we're um, looking at on questions God asks. So we've looked at a question God asked when he asked um, Cain, uh, where is your brother? And Cain thought he was off the hook by saying, am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer was, well, yes, you are. And then um, there was another uh, example where uh, Samuel was grieved over the idea that the first king of Israel, Saul, had so abandoned tracking with God that God had abandoned him as king. And God was ready to move on and anoint David as king, and Samuel was still grieving the loss of his envisioned kingdom under Saul. And God said, how long will you grieve the loss of Saul? And, and the idea was that there's a time for grieving and a time where it becomes an excuse for not moving on. And today I want to look at a story you might be familiar with out of the book of Jonah. And God asked Jonah, why are you angry? And, and to me, that's the best question he could have asked uh, because I have a tendency to get angry and then wish I hadn't got angry. And so then the conclusion is, how do I keep anger from happening? And we uh, did an emotionally healthy spirituality class last winter. We're going to do a series uh, this coming winter where we'll um, expand that out a a little bit church-wide. One of the uh, people who actually founded Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and was a pastor in New York for uh, over two decades uh, is is a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And he was wrestling with his anger. And he said one time he was praying, he said, God, take away my anger. And he heard almost as though God were saying to him, while I'm at it, what other attributes of mine do you want me to take away? God is angry. And not being angry doesn't make us better image bearers. God expresses his anger in love. And learning how to express anger appropriately makes us people who image a God with an emotion called angry, anger. It's interesting to me how um, it's one of those emotions because it goes south so fast, we would rather avoid it than learn how to control it because it so often controls us. And so we just rather kind of step away from it than rather step into it. And yet I want to look at it today because I believe that God is, when, when he interacts with Jonah, he doesn't tell Jonah to get away from anger. He's asking him why. And, and I think that's the right question for us to be able to ask ourselves as well. Now, you may know the story, and for those of you who don't, I'm just going to take a minute to maybe catch us up. So um, Jonah's a story about a man who gets asked to go preach uh, to a city named Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of a, of a country called, or an empire called Assyria. And Assyria is an enemy of Israel. So when a prophet of Israel gets asked to go prophesy against their enemy, what they really want to prophesy is judgment. What was the frustrating thing for Jonah was his, his commission wasn't go preach judgment, go preach contingent judgment. Say to them, I'm displeased with you, says God. And if you don't repent within 40 days, I will destroy your city. 
and he takes off and goes the opposite direction. He's swallowed by a great fish. He's belched up on the beach. Um, he uh, recalibrates, goes to Nineveh, preaches uh, that message, and to his dismay, they repent. Okay, so chapter one, you kind of have God speaking to Jonah. In chapter two, you have Jonah speaking out of this fish in a prayer, speaking to God. In chapter three, you have God speaking through Jonah to Nineveh. In chapter four, you have God and Jonah speaking to each other. And so we're in that chapter four where they're speaking to each other and processing what's going to happen. Okay, in that. Uh, I'm sure he's just really annoyed every time God speaks about Nineveh because God doesn't just say, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Nineveh. Hey, here's where I'd like you to go. I'd like you to go to Nineveh, which would have been bad enough because he hated Nineveh. But God used a, um, a descriptor and he called it that great city. Every time he'd say, he'd go, I want you to go to that great city, Nineveh. And you can just almost see uh, that Jonah would wince every time he hears that great city. Can we just call it a city? Couldn't we just call it Nineveh? Why do we have to call it that great city? And God's in relief or contrast, seeing it as a great city to Jonah, seeing it as a city that deserves to be destroyed. He doesn't want anything to do with turning it around. He's already angry at it before God asks him to go. And it just makes him more angry that God would ask him to go as an agent of grace. So we're going to pick it up in the last verse of chapter 3 and read the first few verses of chapter 4 together. So starting with verse 10 of chapter 3, it says that when God saw what they did, that's the people of Nineveh, and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? So let's just take a couple minutes and look at Jonah's first kind of assessment, okay? He's told the city, you are going to re uh, be judged if you don't repent, and he steps away. In fact, he goes up to a vantage point and builds a little shelter, and he's hoping that somehow they're going to be destroyed. And he's really disappointed. They repent. And as he's waiting there for 40 days, hoping that the countdown will show them that they didn't have the follow-through it took, that maybe it was just a weekend sentimental thing, like, yeah, we really are bad people, aren't we? And then they just revert back to being bad people. But for somehow, it's, it took... It's stuck. It's like they went, we really have acted in a way that offended the God of the universe. Let's change. And they changed. And as he's sitting there day after day after day for over a month, they're following God. And he's on a slow burn, getting more and more and more mad, saying, this isn't going to happen because I knew this is what you were going to do. This is why I didn't want to do it in the first place because I know you are gracious and compassionate and long-suffering. 
He actually quotes um, a passage that is in the Old Testament from when uh, Moses comes down off this hill with the two uh, tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, and he sees Israel having an orgy. He sees them worshiping a, a golden calf. And in the midst of all of his own anger, Moses' anger, um, there's this declaration that God is a compassionate God who's long-suffering who will be gracious to people who've turned their back towards him. And the very thing that Jonah, as a prophet, knew that God had done to Israel, he dreaded that God might do to Assyria. And he goes, I knew the kind of God you were, and when you commissioned me to this, I could just smell that you were going to do something good. And I don't want anything good happening to Nineveh. So, so it's in the midst of that that we have him saying, why are you angry? It's as though knowing who God is didn't change his life at all. It's as though good theology didn't necessarily transform him. Knowing something about God should change us. And the more we know about God, the more it should change us. So um, I'm going on vacation on Tuesday, and uh, Abby, who um, works in our office system and, and works, uh, helps me a lot in ministry assistant stuff, is going to watch my dog. And today she's coming over for her dog orientation. And um, the interesting thing about the dog orientation isn't like, okay, here is the beast, okay? It isn't like you've got to put on gloves and everything like that to, to enter into our home. But it is like when you're getting ready to leave the house, nothing. Now, let me repeat that, Abby. Nothing can be anywhere where the dog can get it, okay? Uh, my dog is smart enough to know that she likes to chew shoes. She's not kind enough to know that she should chew pairs of shoes. So I have three left shoes that are chewed, but none of my right shoes, just three pairs of shoes destroyed because she's evidently a left-shoed person, okay, or, or being. So she destroys that. I had somebody else watch her a couple months ago, and when they left, they left a pen on the counter in the kitchen. And when I came home, the pen had been dismantled on my couch with a, a nice ink stain, you know? It's not the person who watched the dog's fault. I just have a dog who goes, how can I terrorize Bill? <laughs> okay? She's not a kind person or dog to me, okay? Um, knowing that, it's pretty easy for me. When I get ready to come uh, to church today, it was just a scour of the house. What is within Zoe's reach, you know? And taking care of that. Because I know my dog, it changes how I treat my dog. Knowing God didn't change Jonah's life at all. It didn't make him love what God loves and hate what God hates. It didn't make him angry at what God's angry at. It made him just who he was. It didn't get anywhere past here to change his heart or his behavior at all. And unfortunately, we can spend the same kind of time in Western Christianity putting it away in a cerebral pocket and it never is transformational at all. 
It doesn't change us in the least. And we've got great theology. If I were to say to you, tell me about God, some of you would go, he is, and then you could go through the omnis. He's omnipresent. You know, he's omniscient. You know, or you could go through some attributes like he's, he's loving and he's kind. Um, but here's the interesting thing. If I were to say to you, tell me about your living room today. And you go, well, okay. The couch is by the window and there's a picture on that wall and we have a keyboard that's in this corner or a piano that's over here. None of you said, I need to memorize my living room in case he asks. You know it because you live there. And somehow Jonah had memorized to God but wasn't living there. He would rather not live at all. In fact, three times in this chapter, he goes, I would rather be dead than experience the grace of God towards Nineveh. Three different times he's saying, it hurts so much for me to see your grace towards somebody who doesn't deserve it that I would never give it to. I'd rather be dead. Just kill me. And it's just funny to kind of listen to how dramatic Jonah puts the case. And rather than just kind of saying, look, I was going to do this to Nineveh, but I'm just going to make a quick end to this story. I'm going to do it to you and snuff Jonah out of the picture. God's interested in transforming him too. He's not interested in just saying, too bad you didn't learn your lesson. We're going on with Nineveh. He's sitting there watching Nineveh not get destroyed, being angry. God says, okay, let me try and point this picture a different way because first of all, you're getting mad at something that you should be rejoicing over. Now, let's just say, for example, that you were uh, someone who really liked the city of Chicago. Okay, you thought that was the best city in the United States. And God says to you, I want you to go to that great city of New York and I want you to preach the gospel there. And you go, New York, I like Chicago. And he said, no. And so you go to New York and you start walking through New York going, repent, if you don't repent in 40 days, God's going to destroy New York. And there's a part of you that goes, hope that happens because I really like Chicago. And you walk through it and you go up and you find a vantage point and you're watching New York and <laughs> person after person, neighborhood after neighborhood, people in New York start to repent. And by the end of 40 days, New York City is like a big worship center. And you're going, I knew this would happen. I hate it when you're compassionate. I mean, isn't that a goofy response? I mean, this is the biggest revival in the history of the Old Testament. In chapter 4, towards the end, he says, there's 120 people that don't know their left from their right hand. That's not a comment on Nineveh's public education system. He's not saying, yeah, people don't even know their left from their right. How do we graduate them from high school? Okay, that's not the issue. He's saying there are over 120,000 preschoolers. Little kids who don't know their left from their right hand. That's how big the city is. It's probably as close to the size of Portland. And the city repented. And Jonah missed it. He got mad. He, he missed what a great grace moment in the history of our planet. He, instead of rejoicing in that, he got mad. 
And God said, is it right for you to be angry? And he just kind of leaves it there. And then he, he builds out a little uh, pod place for uh, Jonah. So in verse 5, it said, Jonah gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he'd made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant uh, that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. So God lowers the bar from, is it right for you to be angry? Like, is it right for you to be angry that Nineveh is getting rescued? And he just doesn't even respond. Then he makes this little gourd plant um, uh, come up and give him shade and it dies. And, and he's angry. He goes, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Like he added that to make it lower. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah goes, yeah. And the question actually, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah's going, yeah, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry about Nineveh. I have a right to be angry about the plant. I have a right to be angry. And, and in his world, he's saying, because the way you're treating Nineveh makes me feel like I'm not special. It makes me feel like grace is just out there for anybody. And I thought we were the special people of God. I thought we had some kind of pre uh, status, some kind of prestige as Israel. And you've just let Nineveh be our peers. And you've just taken away my gourd as though you don't give me special protection. I have a right to be mad. I'm a prophet of God and they don't even know you. And God's saying, yeah. What happened there? How could you be so upset about a plant and could care less about people when 120,000 of them were children and didn't know their left from their right hand? How, how could that be okay with you and this plant not be okay with you, that it would wither and die? And so I want to look at the idea that most of us, when we get angry, we um, act in ways that we wish we hadn't. And most of us, when we get angry, um, wish we hadn't got angry, rather than wish we had acted in a way that reflected God, which is what God's asking his prophet to do, is I don't want you to just not be angry I want you to reflect me. I want you to rejoice when somebody repents. And I want you to go confront somebody when they don't, which is what he did when he went to them in the first place. So I, I would like to suggest a couple of things that happen when we, or that should happen when we get angry. Because it seems to me like one of the number one characteristics of biblical anger is that it's slow. It's slow to anger. Uh, when I was 21, I got married, and my wife had come from a home where whenever anybody got mad, they clammed up. 
They didn't say anything. They just were, went on silent mode. Okay? And I grew up in a home where when anybody got mad, we blew up. And everybody in our neighborhood know that, knew that the clams were angry. Okay? So those were the two families we came from. And my family went from blow up, and then if you got really mad, you went to clam up. And her family kind of went the other way, from clam up, and then if you got really mad, you go to blow up. So when we got m married, and she would clam up, I'm going, whoa, you just bypassed blow up. You know, what happened there? You must really be angry. And when I blow up, she was doing the same thing. Wow, you didn't even have a time of being silent before you just went to, to yelling. And we, um, we were misreading each other's intensity of anger because of our families of origin. Okay? As we kind of look at this idea of what does it look like, there are all kinds of coaching you've had as to how to express your anger. There have been all kinds of ways you've been told to avoid your anger. You know, as I started reading over the last couple of weeks on, on anger, from a Christian perspective, it seemed like one of the consistent recommendations was confess your anger. Like, there was no, no place for it, so just automatically confess it as sin. And that's the kind of thinking that doesn't see that there's a God who gets angry. That's the kind of thinking that, that goes binary of, since I can't handle anger, I'll just get rid of anger rather than I need to be transformed so I can even house anger in a way that reflects God himself. So, I think, first of all, we need to admit if we've got anger going on. It's pretty easy to deny it. And then I think we assess the source like God asked Jonah to do. Why are you angry? Why, why am I angry? What is it I'm trying to defend what is this that's, that's, that's threatening me? Why, why has this pushed a button in me that's made me angry, that we would kind of assess it? And then we'd be willing to give some grace. That person, what they just did made me angry. What would have gone through their world? What, what are they experiencing that would have made them act that way? See, if we were to take the time to evaluate ourselves and take the time to give somebody else grace, that's slow to anger rather than being that person that's just right in this, some kind of stimulus response mode as though we have no ability to process or think ourselves and we just find ourselves as brute beasts. We're not. We have the ability. That's why the Bible says, in your anger, don't sin. The command wasn't, don't get angry. It's saying, when you're angry, don't sin. So I want to uh, read to you an excerpt. Um, this was uh, from a talk that was given at a luncheon for pastors in Detroit 54 years ago. Okay? And it was uh, given by a, you, you've probably heard this person, of this person before, but it was a luncheon where Martin Luther King Jr. gave this address. We must learn to say to all those reactionaries who have blocked the road to progress that we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. But put us in your jails and we will go with humble smiles on our faces 
still loving you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we, will not, we are not fit morally, culturally, or otherwise for integration, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities in the midnight hours. Drag us out on some wayside road. Beat us and leave us half dead, and we will still love you. But be assured of this, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom, but not only will we win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Do you hear somebody who's angry? I hear somebody who's angry. But I don't hear somebody who demands rights over law, love. I hear someone who's saying, I am angry and I am going to love you into submission. <laughs> I am angry and I will behave in a loving way. Do you see how different our anger is from an anger that God would have? This um, past month, I had the opportunity to go on a long motorcycle ride. Started with four guys that left from Portland, and we met uh, four or five more guys in Estacada, then seven or eight more guys in Eugene. And by the time we got to Northern California, there were almost 50 of us at this hotel. Um, it looked like an ancient... Um, Hell's Angels group, and uh, uh, as we, we all got there, we were, we were on our way, and I have a motorcycle that starts with an electronic fob rather than a, a, a key, and um, I had the pocket to my coat open, and I was riding on the highway, and my fob blew out of my uh, coat, and it will run with the fob, but it won't start without the fob, so the next time we stopped, my bike wouldn't start. And we are like, you know, 30 miles from the nearest town, and we are out in nowhere. And um, I can just see all, you know, all these guys are going to leave me there. Uh, I don't even have cell service. This is a bad day for me. And... Um, all of a sudden, they all just start working. You know, one guy pulls a strap out of his uh, uh, kit, and he wraps it around my handlebars and around his handlebars, and he starts towing me around his motorcycle and my motorcycle back to town. And two of the other guys take off, and they go back to the town where we last did gas, and they look around to see if the fob dropped out there. And I had it in a sunglasses case uh, or in a little sock, and this guy said, you know, I thought I saw something blow out of your suitcase. So he went back to where he saw that, and he found my fob on the side of the highway. It was just kind of amazing. And, and uh, that took an hour. And, and it wasn't like these guys were all uh, guys from a Bible study. They, they, they're motorcycle riders, you know. Most of them are hooligans. And so um, uh, 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 they just took an hour out of their weekend ride to not lose somebody, you know. And it, it was a time where I watched, I mean, I, I started thinking about it a lot afterwards of how mad I would have been that somebody lost his fob and how I, mad I would have been that I had to go back and find someone else's fob and how mad I would have been that an hour out of my riding day got taken out looking for some guy who couldn't even figure out how to keep his keys in his pocket. You know, it just, there were a lot of reasons why I shouldn't be on that trip if, if I were in charge of people on that trip. And I was graced. 
And we get the opportunity to use our anger in a transformed way. It isn't the idea that we ignore it or stuff it, but that we call out the best of people. So today, what I want you to see is that this is a representation of the most severe expression of anger in the history of the planet. Every one of us has offended God. We're all Nineveh. We're all Israel at the bottom of that hill uh, saying we want a different God. Every one of us, the Bible says, has turned our back away from God. And rather than being angry like the nacho people and saying we can make more, it's like God said, I'm not going to make more people. I'm going to redeem these people. And so he poured out his wrath on a cross to redeem us, to rescue us, so that through his anger, we might experience his love. Through the anger of MLK, he's saying, you're going to experience our love. You know, that, that's a right use of anger. Why are you angry? I think the answer is because we have misplaced love. And I want to invite you today to, it's okay to be angry when our love is the loves of God. And it needs to be repented when the loves are self-centered. I want to invite you today to let God absorb all the ways you've been angry towards him and just be honest with him today to receive his grace that you have made him angry and he extends you love that you might learn how to extend love even through anger to other people they're not mutually exclusive hate is but love isn't and I want to invite you to be people who know how to love even in an unmanageable, even in what seems like a crazy emotion called anger. That why are you angry? God, I'm angry because you're angry. And I want to love because you love. Why are you angry? I'm angry because it's my own stuff. God, would you forgive me? So as you come to the table today, let the things that you have made God angry about, stay at the table. And let the things that God is angry about transform your anger into something that lets other people experience his love. Let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you loved us so much. That you poured out your wrath that it wouldn't be between us today. Thank you for that. And I want to pray for anyone here who thinks that they have so sinned that you are too angry to love them, that you would convince them otherwise today. God, I would pray that we would let you love us rather than be angry at you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may need some help walking through that. And so if you need to pray with somebody or have someone pray for you, I want to invite you to one of the doors while we worship in response. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. 
If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.